You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please open in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I mentioned last week that it's just been on my heart of late to think together about the subject of unity in the life of the congregation, just that we would not be ignorant of our enemy's schemes, that we would be proactive and preemptive when it comes to guarding and maintaining the unity that is ours in Christ. And I just want to continue to emphasize that. What we're really talking about is not creating some kind of unity, but guarding it and protecting it and walking in it because it's a unity that we were already granted in Christ. Jesus prayed for His people, for us, in John 17 and asked the Father to make us one. That's a prayer that has been answered. We are one in His Son and therefore what we're careful about is to walk in that unity, to to cherish it and to protect it in terms of the living out of it. So that's why we're in Ephesians 4 for the next few weeks on Sunday evenings, thinking about this subject of unity and specifically the unity of the congregation. I want us to read beginning at verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 16. Ephesians 4, we read beginning with the first verse. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is that call to unity there in verse 3. Being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. And He Himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body the building up of itself in love. From verse 1 all the way to verse 16, there's really an emphasis on unity, especially beginning 
with verse 3 down to verse 16, this emphasis on unity. So this is where we'll be tonight and for the next few weeks. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time tonight. Father in heaven, thank You that You are sufficient and Your Word is sufficient for all that pertains to life and godliness. There's not a need represented in this room tonight that the answer is not You and the answer that we find in You is not worked out and supplied in connection with the Word that You have placed in our hands, Your Holy Word, the Scriptures. Even our Savior, when confronted with temptation, quoted the Scriptures. And so, Lord, tonight as we look to You for the needs of our lives, we're so grateful that Your throne is described for us as a throne of grace, where we find help in our time of need. And so all the needs represented in this room, we come to Your throne of grace and we pray that tonight's sermon would contribute to the meeting of those needs. Lord, You know us perfectly, better than we know ourselves. You know exactly what we need, and I pray that You would be at work, Your Spirit would take His sword in hand, be at work in this next hour, with the preaching of Your Word, that our lives would be helped and transformed. We are mindful that some might be in this room tonight who don't know You, and some hearing my voice later who don't know You. And we ask that in Your great mercy and grace and kindness, You would bring lost sinners to faith in Your Son, Jesus, that they might be set free and made alive in Him. But we gather as Your church, we have needs as Your church, and we pray that You would meet our needs tonight, Lord, through Your Word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We said last Sunday evening that true unity, true spiritual unity, always rests on a larger foundation. The way to experience unity in any set of relationships, whether it's unity even in your own family or it's unity in the Lord's church, the way we walk in that, the way we live that, is with something larger than unity informing our unity. So it's not enough when you think about a congregation just to say, now be unified. This is not something that exists based on willpower. If we're talking about spiritual unity, we're talking about something supernaturally explained. It's not explained by nature. It's not explained by human wisdom. It's not explained ultimately by human effort. Obviously, sanctification is synergistic. You and I are at work as God is working. But nonetheless, if we're talking about true spiritual unity, we're talking about something produced by the Spirit of God. It exists because of salvation. And you see that even in our text, don't you? Because before Paul gets to this call for unity in verse 3, he lays a foundation in verses 1 and 2. And last Sunday evening, we, we, we began with the first part of this foundation found in the ver first verse, and that is the knowledge of our salvation. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's the call, the effectual call of God into salvation. I want you to reflect, he's saying, on God's grace to you, God's mercy to you, His kindness to you in making you His people. I want you to reflect on the fact that you've been saved 
Now to no longer live for yourself, but to live for the one who gave himself for you. Paul's a great model of this. Writing these glorious things from the place of Roman imprisonment, and yet he sees himself not as a prisoner of Rome, but as a prisoner in the Lord. In prison not only on behalf of Christ, but in prison in the sovereign will of Christ. Right where the Lord has him. So that he serves as a model of this first part of the foundation. You and I have been delivered from the wrath of God, forgiven of all of our sins, granted new life in Jesus Christ, set free to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for God, having the capacity to actually walk in what we're being exhorted to in verse 1. And that is now live a life that matches your profession and matches the reality of what God has done for you. Walk. This speaks of lifestyle. This speaks of day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision, submission to the Lordship of Christ, submission to the truth of the Scriptures. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There should be no stark contrast between what we profess and what we practice, between what we know to be true from a doctrinal point of view and what we exhibit from a devotional point of view, let your life match God's grace to you. Let your life testify to God's grace to you. This has to do with our ambition. The call to unity in verse 3 will not matter to you unless you really care about what he's exhorting you to in verse 1. Do you want to live a life that matches the gospel? Do you want to live a life that matches up with God's grace and kindness and mercy to His people? Does that matter to you? Because if the glory of God doesn't matter to you, then your relationships with each other won't really matter to you. If the glory of God is not chief in your ambitions... If you don't see yourself as existing to glorify God and to enjoy Him, if that's not why you exist, then every exhortation found in the New Testament with respect to the one another's, how we live toward each other, those things won't matter to us either. It, it all begins with this foundational commitment. My life exists for God. My life exists for Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. And therefore, to die is gain. I present myself to God as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to Him. This is how we live our lives. And so this is the first part of the foundation for unity. Am I committed? Am I desiring? Am I aiming at walking in a manner worthy of my calling? Now tonight, we come to the second part of the foundation. We're still not yet to the call for unity in verse 3. This is still foundational, but it's absolutely necessary for unity, and that is, do I embrace the attitudes that match with the gospel? Verse 1, think about what God has done in saving you. Verse 2, now embrace the attitudes that match with that reality. That's what he's describing in verse 2. What does it mean to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called? It means that you're living your life with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
It means you bear with one another in love. It means you're diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, this flows out of this knowledge of what God has done in saving us and this desire to live a life that matches with it. And so what he's describing in verse 2 are five attitudes of heart necessary to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. If I ask you tonight, do you desire to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, and you say yes, then I'm going to say next, okay, here are five attitudes that you must desire, that you must embrace, which is to say, when you recognize what is emanating from your flesh instead of what is produced by the Spirit of God, you've got to recognize it as sin and be willing to repent of it and turn from it and mortify it. Not settle for anything less than what's being described in verse 2. This is how I must live if I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. These are the attitudes that must exist in my heart and must be lived out in my life. As we look at these five attitudes, you're going to see it's, it's like a telescope, a telescopic sort of effect in that you've seen those, you know, telescopes you sort of pull out and they extend out. Each of these qualities he's going to describe feed into the next one. There's progression in these five things. Humility leading to gentleness, leading to patience, leading to forbearance, all of it expressing love. Tonight we're going to look at two of these attitudes. We'll come back next Sunday evening and look at the three that are left. The first thing we think about tonight is the worthy walk is a humble walk. Do we desire to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, then we must walk in humility. Pride is not worthy of the name Christian. Humility fits. Humility fits the name Christian, but pride does not fit with the name Christian. The word translated humility is a compound word. It means to think or to judge with lowliness. Lowliness of mind. And what that is speaking of is lowliness of mind with regard to yourself. To think about yourself, to judge yourself in a way that's lowly. Even though a different word is used in Matthew 5, the same idea is described in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.3 when it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit. To see oneself as a beggar with respect to righteousness, so that eventually you cry out for righteousness, a righteousness not your own, a righteousness that has to be gifted to you by God and received by faith in His Son. But it all begins with a right self-perspective. Who am I apart from the grace of God? What would I be apart from God's mercy to me? I am a sinner worthy of the wrath of God. I'm not some great thing. I'm not I'm not someone in and of myself to be celebrated. I'm someone to be pitied by God and someone who deserves His wrath, and yet He has pitied me. He's had mercy upon me. Just like the world that you live in, the world of Paul's time did not celebrate humility. 
You've got to know this as a believer. The ways of Christ are in contrast with the ways of the world. And it's not just a philosophical contrast. It's a contrast explained by regeneration. It's a contrast explained by your eyes having been opened. It's not you and I embracing something that's sort of good philosophically, but actually in contrast with what's real. No, it's God opening our eyes to reality. We see that we're just dust. We're just a breath. Our meaning is found in our relationship with our Creator. Our purpose is found in His will for our lives and His will for all things. And so the way of humility is the way of the regenerate. This is possible for us because we know God. But where men and women are still in their sins, where they have not experienced the new birth, where they are still blind to the greatness of God, they're also blind to their own smallness, and the result is pride. So, so this is the result of your calling. The reason why you can walk in humility is because the Lord has delivered you from the blindness of pride that existed in your lost condition. What is humility? If you look at the Word of God and ask, what are characteristics of humility? What will you find in Scripture? What will you see? Let me mention a few things. First of all, humility is the foundation, or you could say the fountain, of all other virtues. Just as you find pride in every sin, you'll find humility in every virtue. There is nothing good that God has ever formed in your life apart from humility. This is where Jesus begins in the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Scripture says wisdom abides. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes... Then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Where does wisdom exist in this congregation? In the place where God has produced humility. That's where wisdom is found. You know this, the Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So this is where it all starts in terms of virtue, at the place of humbling ourselves. Lord, form in me what pleases you, because I don't have the power to form that in myself, and it's not present in me from birth. You have had mercy upon me and forgiven all my sins and made me a new creation in your Son. Now, Lord, form the character of your Son in my life. That is the cry of humility. This is where your life in Christ began, with the bowing of your heart. Matthew 18.3 says, Truly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How did you become like a child when the Lord saved you? How did you enter into the kingdom? At the place of humbling yourself. This is where we all started with Jesus, humbling ourselves. And this is as I mentioned, how Christ's likeness will then be formed through progressive sanctification. It's the pathway of humility. 
Our Lord said this in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm going to put my yoke on you. I'm going to train you, lead you, teach you. Learn from me, next statement, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. What does it mean to take the yoke of Christ? It means you humble yourself and learn from Him. And He says that He is gentle and humble in heart. He says, and you shall find rest for your souls. Can you see the great deception that exists among humanity when it comes to pride and humility because there are people churning in life trying to find their sense of purpose by making much of themselves. I'm going to be somebody. And Jesus says you find rest when you take His yoke and learn from Him. And He's humble and gentle. 1 John 2.16, the one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. Are you really in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have His life? Are you one who abides in Him? Then walk as He walked. Walk in the same manner as He walked. Well, how did He walk? God, God came to earth and how did He come? Born in a stable. Common parents. No earthly riches. Buried in a borrowed tomb. He used Himself as the, <clears throat> as the example when He exhorted His disciples to think differently about leadership. Leadership's found in the place of service. He washed their feet at the Last Supper to demonstrate what He was teaching them about. He says, I came not to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The way to living a life that glorifies God is dying. It's not the exaltation of you, it's the exaltation of God. That's the mindset we're called to embrace. And we're called to embrace that mindset in every situation, with every choice, with every action, with every word, with every thought. It's one thing to speak lowly of yourself. Do you think lowly of yourself? How many self-exalting thoughts run through your mind in any given week? Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing, do nothing from selfishness. I love this. Or empty conceit. What is conceit? It's empty. It's a deception. It's hollow. There's nothing real in it. When you exalt yourself in your mind, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How would it transform your relationships in the church? How would it transform your relationships at home if you said to yourself, 
embracing the mind of Christ, you said to yourself, they are more important than me. And I'm not living for them to make much of me. I'm living to serve them. My satisfaction will not be based on what I get from them, but God, what you allow me to be to to them. Glorify your name through me in their lives. So humility is the foundation, it's the fountain for every other virtue. It's where we began in Christ. It's how we continue in Christ. It's the mindset we're to embrace in every situation for every choice and every word we speak. We're to do nothing that's contrary to it, even though we know we do much that is contrary to it. And you see, those are the things we have to confess as sin and turn from those things. Which gets to the second thing I think you'll see in Scripture about it, and I want to say about it, and that is humility is elusive. We know its importance, but it's, it's still elusive to us. In fact, sort of a twist, if you focus too much on humility, it becomes pride. Anybody here proud of your humility? Really make humility my point. I focus all the time on humility. I talk all the time about humility so that everybody knows that I'm humble. (laughs) No, it's got to be highly prized. It's got to be sincerely pursued. But the very nature of it is you don't think much about yourself. You're not at the center of your thinking all the time. The humble life is not a self-focused life. It looks away from itself. It looks to the Lord, and it looks to the needs of others. It's not consumed with itself. Do you understand the danger of pride? Do you, do you fear it in your own life? Where did our fall as a human race begin except with pride, Adam and Eve tempted by the serpent in a paradise? And Eve feels like she has the right to reason outside of what God has revealed and make a decision based upon her own thinking instead of based upon what God said, falling prey to temptations that involved questioning the Word of God and distorting the Word of God and denying the Word of God. And there she is feeling like she has the right to to take all that in and reason for herself whether or not she should partake of something God put off limits. Pride was there when, when we died in Adam. You see examples of this I'll just give you one. I think about Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 5.18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father's kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Do you understand that if you hold on to your pride, you will not humble your heart before God. You will one day be stripped of everything that makes you so proud. Either we will forsake pride or pride will destroy us. Pride is at the root of all our sinning. Pride was at the core of our very nature when we were lost. 
This is how lost humanity is described in the Scriptures. Proud. Proverbs 21, verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. Describing the wicked in general terms and describing the wicked not just as sinful, but in their sinfulness, haughty eyes, a proud heart, uplifted eyes, a proud countenance that comes from a proud place in the inner man. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I mean, he's talking about the judgment of the lost. And he describes them as arrogant. All the arrogant and every evildoer. Who are the evildoers? Those who are Arrogant, those who are proud. The root of all sin, the very nature of lost humanity. Pride is what Satan aims at in all of his temptations of us. What is he wanting to produce in you when he tempts you? But a proud heart. And why should that surprise us? Because pride is at the heart of his own evil nature. Satan wants you to think and to behave in a way that matches his identity. Even when you talk about something like temptations in the church, think about church leaders. 1 Timothy 3.6, giving the qualifications for an elder, it says, and not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The devil condemned in his pride who then will turn around and condemn you when you fall as he has enticed you to be conceited in your heart. Pride comes in many different forms. You can be proud over your abilities, proud over your possessions, proud over your education, proud over your social status, proud over your appearance, proud over your influence, proud over your Bible knowledge. That's ironic, isn't it? Proud about your religious accomplishments. Proud of your humility. It's insidious. It wears many different masks and flatters us as it assaults us. And maybe what makes this a very difficult battle beyond the fact that it's just in all sin is that we live in a world in which it's accepted and exalted and celebrated every day. And from a temporal point of view, I mean, if all you were living for are the things of this world, it even seems to pay off sometimes. The way of humility seems to be the way of losing. The way of humility seems to be the way of loss. Think about the various ways it has manifested itself in movements during our lifetimes, cultural movements, the positive thinking movement, made its way even into evangelicalism, Zig Ziglar and many others we could name, where the key to living for Christ, living for God is positive thinking, positive thinking, which often had to do with 
you can do it, and pride, self-respect movement. Nobody's going to respect you if you don't respect yourself. Got to stand up for yourself. Got to make sure no one disrespects you. Got to stand your ground. You've got to make sure your boundaries are respected. The self-love movement. You can't love others till you love yourself. The social justice movement. You have been mistreated. Now it's your turn to be treated properly, even if it means the mistreatment of other people. All those things, what do they have in common? They don't emanate from Scripture, and they're all full of pride. So humility is the fountain of all other virtues, but it is elusive. It is something that we must pursue with fear and trembling, knowing that the alternative is deadly. Oh, Lord, help us to see our pride. It's in every sin that I commit. It once was at the core of my very nature and my lost condition. It is in every one of Satan's temptations. It wears many different masks, and it's promoted all over this world. Your ways are in contrast to the ways of this world. Lord, let me learn from Jesus. Third, finally, I'll say this. Humility is often counterfeited. One of the ways that humility proves to be elusive is that there's a false humility. Often promoted in the, in the place of real humility, it has nothing supernatural in it, something you can produce. It's kind of an act. It's as simple as what you say about yourself or the way you carry yourself. Something you put on. If you're buying into the counterfeit, you will be greatly aware of it and you will hope everybody else is greatly aware of it. I say to you again, if you're walking in true humility, you're not going to be paying much attention to yourself. I don't mean in the sense of not being vigilant with respect to sin and that sort of thing. I'm saying you're not going to be thinking all the time about yourself and hoping others recognize in you that which pleases God. Can't you see my humility? That's a false humility. Don't act humble. Ask the Lord to make you humble so that it's supernaturally natural to you. You just walk in a way that reflects the mind of Christ. So how do you pursue it? You know, we've talked not only about the dangers of, of not having it, we've also talked about some dangers wrapped up in counterfeits and substitutes that aren't the real thing. So how do I pursue humility? It's actually pretty simple. Let me just mentioned two ways. First of all, proper self-awareness. See yourself in agreement with the Scriptures. Study the Bible. Listen to what it says about lost humanity. Acknowledge that's who I was. Listen to what it says about saved humanity. Say, that's who I am. Listen to what it says about your frailty and the brevity of your life and the purpose of your life and your needs in life and the source of your supply in life, listen to all those things so that you have a proper self-awareness. That's how you walk in humility. It's the byproduct of scripturally faithful thinking. And when that's going on, the second thing will be true, proper God-awareness, Christ-awareness. You see this again and again in the Scriptures that when men and women have a right view of God, then what they come to be aware of 
is their own smallness. If your view of yourself is too high, it's because your view of God is too low. See God rightly. See Christ rightly. It will drive you to your knees. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, you know this well. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said... Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he sees himself in a lowly way. You want to walk in humility? Meditate much on the nature and character of God. Get into your Bible and study your God. Get to know Him well. And as you see Him clearly, you will begin to see yourself clearly. You see this in the life of Peter, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We've done that, Lord. That's what he's saying. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. I mean, this is supernatural, what Peter is seeing. How does he respond? Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. His meeting with the greatness of Jesus opened his eyes to his own smallness, his sinfulness. You know this in the life of Job. Job didn't have the book of Job. Job was living the book of Job. And he has complaints. And he doesn't understand. And he voices his lack of understanding. And then the Lord begins to answer him. As you know, if you've read that book, a large part of the answer is, Job, I am God and you are not. And I am wise and you are not all wise. And I am always good and you are not. And you listen in Job chapter 42, verse 1, where the Bible says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, this is after this instruction, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you 
by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My speech has been filled with great ignorance. Lord, you speak and I'll listen. You tell me and I'll hear you. And I repent of my foolishness. I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. How do you walk in humility? A right self-perspective. Where does that come from? The Word of God. But in conjunction with that, must exist in conjunction with that, a right view of God. A high view of God that then allows me to see myself rightly. And this is what happens whenever God saves someone. Jesus telling the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, verse 13. It says, but the tax collector, tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. What is the worthy walk? It's a humble walk. It's walking in humility. And very quickly, when you think about unity in the life of the church, you can see where this is absolutely necessary because what you're talking about is godly wisdom instead of worldly wisdom. The book of James says that wherever you have pride and worldly wisdom at work, you're going to have all kinds of chaos. By the way, you can extend this to your own home life too. If there's all kinds of chaos going on in your family, if there's all kinds of disunity going on in your marriage, because pride is there, Worldly wisdom is there. James 3 says in verse 13, who is wise? In fact, why don't you just turn? I want you to see this with your eyes. Go to James chapter 3 real quickly because it's a bit of an extended section. But I want you to see how vital this is to unity. Humility is necessary for unity. James 3, look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. In the meekness of wisdom. Where there is wisdom, there is meekness, gentleness. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, that's a self-centered life. That's a selfish life. That's a proud life, right? He says, do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't say that's godliness. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here you are, this self-driven, selfish life. This is why you're always warring. But you know what's missing? Looking up to God. The humility that says, you know what is best. I look to you for the satisfaction of my heart. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You do understand. You can be voicing the words, I just want what 
You want God. Oh, Lord, satisfy my heart and all the rest and still be absolutely miserable because even in your prayers, it's what you want. It's not what he wants. It's what you want. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Take all of this discussion there in James 3 and 4, and he sums it up with that. God resists. He's opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to humble people. How do you explain disorder, disunity, warring, arguing, quarreling? Lives where you are at the center, not God's glory. Lives where even in your praying, you're at the center. It is all about self-satisfaction not what would most please God. And there you don't experience God's grace. He's opposed to pride. But in humility there is grace. So the worthy walk is a humble walk. Second and last for tonight, flowing out of that, the worthy walk is a gentle walk. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness gentleness, meekness, the opposite of harshness, the opposite of self-willed, a broken person who is now a submitted person. The gentle person is not weak. This isn't weakness that we're called to walk in, but rather strength that has been submitted to the Lordship of Christ. All of the abilities, all of the gifts, all of the natural things God has put in you, now having come under the Lordship of Christ, now being submitted to the Scriptures, now being led by the Spirit so that the reasonableness and the being merciful toward others and the kindness toward others and all those things are able to be displayed in this life that is not harsh and destructive, but gentle in nature. The gentle person is not weak. The gentle person, in fact, is so strong they're able to absorb offense. If you want to know whether or not you're walking in humility, which flows out in gentleness, ask yourself, can you absorb someone mistreating you? Are you someone so self-focused that you're defensive? That every perceived slight is something you refuse to live with. 1 Peter 2.23 says, And while being reviled, speaking of our Lord, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. I think about gentleness when I think about King David. On the run... Saul, seeking David's life, has an opportunity, if he had so wanted to, to, to actually lead men in defense of himself and against the king. And yet, when he just cuts off a portion of his garment, David comes under great conviction. 
1 Samuel 24, 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David was a mighty man of valor, and yet he had a gentle soul produced by the grace of God, so tender to the commands of God and so humble in this situation that even as a man seeks his life, he won't raise his hand to take that man's life because of the position God put him in as king of Israel. I want to warn the young men for a moment. You're living right now in a time where due to the, and I've mentioned this in recent days, but I want to repeat it, due to the feminizing of men in our culture, due to the feminizing of men even in the church, there is this reaction now that's going on in the name of Jesus where we're going to recover masculinity. But what I'm seeing in many of these people who are saying these things and teaching these things is actually a distortion of masculinity. It's a worldly view of masculinity because what it's embracing is a kind of strength that cannot absorb an offense, that will not absorb an offense, that is not full of humility and gentleness, but rather self-defense and I will not take it and we will not take it. I think about Proverbs 16.32, it says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. That's a warrior. Someone who captures a city is a warrior. And that verse says, the man who is slow to anger, who controls his own spirit, is better, better than the mighty. So you say you want to be a manly man. You say you want to be masculine. Well, let me ask you, are you an angry man? Because that's not a godly man. Do you know self-control? Can you rule your own spirit? Can you control your own attitudes as you submit them to Christ and to His Word and to the Spirit? There's someone stronger, better, than any mighty warrior. A gentle person is not weak. A gentle person is so strong, they can absorb offense. The gentle person is the person who's able to take instruction from God's Word. James 1.21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. You want to know where you bow before the Lord? 
It's wherever you're really learning the Word of God. It's where the Word of God is really taking root in your heart. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, not reacting against the truths of God's Word, but humbling yourself at that very point and with a broken, submitted life. Now, Lord, teach me. Teach me the way in which I should walk. A gentle person is able to forgive. Are you able to forgive? A gentle person is able to restore. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Again, all this is based on your calling, isn't it? As one who has received grace, I see my humble state. As one who has received mercy from God, now there's a gentleness in my life that even when I meet with a brother or sister in sin, my attitude is rescue which means with a spirit of self-examination that says, that could be me just as easily as it is you. Let me help you out of the ditch and onto the way that we both must walk together. That's the attitude, gentleness, gentleness. Are you able to forgive? Are you someone who is quick to restore where there's genuine repentance? Do you address sin and confront sin in a way that reflects gentleness? The gentle person is able to see the lost as lost. Proud people think they explain them. Why are you like that? Why aren't you like me? Look, look what I've done. Look at my self-discipline. Look at my good choices. Look at my good life. Look at what I've accomplished. What's wrong with you? But someone who really knows the grace of God knows you are a rescued life. If not for God's grace, you are ruined Therefore, when you see people who are lost, you bring them the truth of the gospel in a way that reflects gentleness. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I mean, we're reaching a world that hates us. We're reaching out to a world that was slanderous. And yet even in the face of that kind of hostility, what should characterize us but gentleness and respect? Why? Because the Lord opened my eyes and He can open yours. God has had mercy on me. Oh, may He have mercy on you. So in closing tonight, where does unity exist? where there is this awareness of salvation. God called me out of darkness into light, out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, out of slavery into freedom, out of blindness into sight. Forgave all my sins, made me a new creation. What did I do to earn it, deserve it? Nothing. What does that do? It drives me low. And I embrace the attitude that I see in my Savior in his case, a different kind of humility, the highest embracing the place of the lowliest, the, the master embracing the place of the slave to deliver me. And now here am I, one delivered. What place should I embrace? The place of humility so that I fight pride at every turn, wherever I see it rising up in my mind and heart. I mortify it and put it to death and I embrace what is actually reality and sanity, which is I am nothing. 
I am dust, but God has had mercy upon me. And what does that produce but a kind of gentleness toward other people? So that even if I'm being mistreated, I can absorb an offense. And even if there's the need to confront your sin, I do it in a way that says, if not for the grace of God, I'm in your position. And therefore, I'm quick to forgive and able to restore and easily entreatable and reasonable when it comes to difficulty in relationships. Humility, not pride. Gentleness, not harshness, selfishness, vengefulness. And this applies to the church, but it applies to our private lives, to our friendships, even all the way to our homes. Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. One is the work of the Spirit. The other is the work of the flesh. Which one characterizes you? Last thought. What we're really talking about with all these qualities that make for unity is being filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Submit your heart to Christ. Submit your heart to His Word. If you're born again, you are then filled with the Spirit. And this is the character that will be produced in your life. And with that character, our relationships in this church and in our homes will reflect peace. God has made us to be at peace with Himself. He's granted us now the, the life to be a peacemaker. And our relationships will be filled with the unity and the peace and the joy that only God can produce. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank You for Your mercy to us in Your Son. Thank You for all that You've given us in Him by which we can know not only a right relationship with You, but a right relationship with others. May this church reflect Your glory. May this church reflect the humility and the gentleness that is worthy of our calling. May this be a church, may we be a people that don't embrace worldly ways of thinking because it seems to work, whether it's in the realm of positive thinking or it's in the realm of vengefulness, but Lord, rather let us embrace the mind of Christ at every turn, that the life of Christ, the character of Christ would be formed in us in a progressive way until we are glorified before you. Thank you for your saving work in our lives. Encourage us with these thoughts throughout the week that we might live out the things we're hearing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.